Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Well, it's been a tough year. Recently, I started to wonder if in a few years from now, will there be some people who look back on 2020 with fondness? Will there be some people who say, this was my favorite year? It's hard for many of us to imagine that. The very first weekend in 2020 did not start off well for our student ministries department, even for our whole church, quite honestly. Perhaps you remember that a bunch of our high school students, all of whom were in the middle of their senior year, they were driving around in a pickup truck. The cab was full and there were several boys in the back of the truck late at night when the truck lost control and it tipped over. Several of the students were injured and one young man, Jonah, died of those injuries later that day. It was a tragic and senseless loss of this young man's life, a tragic accident. At a vigil for that student and really for all those students and for all the friends and family later that day, I heard or overheard several people saying, boy, this is not how we wanted to start this new year. And sadly, though the year didn't start the way we wanted, it ended up continuing on with that theme of fear and loss and pain in ways never experienced before, at least in my lifetime. And now we find ourselves with only a few days left in this year of 2020, and collectively most all of us are ready to say that we're all done with this year. So that's the name of this message, All Done. I'm John Riley, the junior high pastor here at Emmanuel Faith, and it's my privilege to bring us not into what's next in 2021. Rather, we're going to be looking back to a time when Jesus cried out, all done. Emmanuel Faith has just finished celebrating the Christmas season, the birth of a baby, the arrival of Jesus. All babies are born with hope and with promise, but for Jesus, the purpose, the direction, the future was never in doubt. The baby we all celebrate was born to die. Now, all babies are born and will die eventually, sadly. Fortunately, most of them grow up and won't die till they're older, but they will die at some point. Death and taxes, the inevitable, that sort of thing. But for all of us besides Jesus, death is not the point. Death is not the purpose. We are born and will die, but we are not born to die. Life and living are what is and can be meaningful. Death is a tragic result of sin, a consequence of sin. Even when firefighters or police or military, anybody who's a hero, gives up their life to save someone else. It's not the death that has the meaning, it's what they did with their life that has the meaning. It's the way that they gave up their life that's significant. How they lived their life to sacrifice for another is special, not being dead. Jesus' death has meaning because that's the only thing that helps us. Normally we say saves us from our problem of sin and death. Jesus came with a task to complete, an assignment a job to do, or a mission. Our lives, our deaths, our future after death totally depends on Jesus' success 
So that's what we're going to look at right now. Jesus' mission accomplished and the effect that it has on us when he cried out, all done. Now, a bit about the context and why we find Jesus where we find him here on the cross. Sacrifices and bloodshed had always been a part of what was required for a recompense for sin. It all started with the animal in the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve discovered that they were naked, God killed an animal, a creature there, and used its hide to cover up their shame and their nakedness. Then, when God gave the law to Moses, the provisions in the law required that animals would be sacrificed in order to cover the sin and shortcomings of people. An animal would be killed, and its blood would be sprinkled on the altar. The blood had to be brought to the altar, almost like a proof or acknowledgement that sin causes pain and loss, a representation that sin is a consequence, or excuse me, that death is a consequence of sin. Right now we're going to look at some of the statements that Jesus made while he was on the cross because those statements teach a lot about him. And the things that he says while he's dying sets an amazing example for us to follow. And we're also going to hear Jesus make a statement about the mission he came here to do and that he gets it done. Now, the Gospels are the first four books of the New Testament, and they detail Jesus' perfect life, his death on the cross, and then his resurrection. And each of them tell the story from a unique perspective and include different parts of the story. So if you're new to the faith or new to church, um, we have these four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're called the Gospels, and that means good news. It's good news because of who Jesus is and what he did by dying for us. It's very good news. And each of these books tells the story. So in Matthew and Mark's story, they both record Jesus saying one phrase where he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we'll focus on that phrase a little bit more detail later on. And then later those books say that he cried out. It doesn't tell us what he cried, but they have those two things recorded. Then in Luke's gospel, it records Jesus saying three different things. And then in John's gospel, three different things are recorded. We're going to look at several of those sayings today to see what we can take away about his mission and about what was really important to Jesus. Because if it matters to Jesus, and if it was important enough for him to say it while he was suffering into death, it should matter to us. We're going to start in the book of Luke, chapter 23, verses 20, excuse me, 32 to 34. It says, Two other men, both criminals, were also led out to be with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Now, for those of you who know the story, did Jesus' murderers ask for forgiveness? Were they sorry or repentant at all? No, they weren't. And here's the first point for us. Forgiveness does not depend on the other person's worth or their request or their sincerity. Uh, every other year with the junior high students, I teach a series on Wednesday nights um, that was created by Freedom in Christ Ministries. The curriculum is called Freedom in Christ for Young People. 
And one of the chapters is about forgiveness. And I usually spread that out over two weeks because for many of us, coming to terms with forgiving someone can be really hard. Here's a quote from what they say in their curriculum about forgiveness. One of the main reasons why some Christians don't grow very much is because they don't understand what forgiving others or why forgiving others is crucial to their own freedom. They only have a hazy idea of what forgiveness really is. Sometimes they believe wrongly that what has been done to them is so bad that they can't forgive the person who did it. The truth is that nothing will stop you moving on more than not forgiving someone who has hurt you. It's an easy way for Satan to stop you is to make you believe that you shouldn't forgive. I think one of the reasons that we can forgive each other and see how Jesus did it on the cross is to understand that all sin is committed in deception. Uh, Recently, my family was driving past the Oceanside Pier on the Coast Highway, and it's a very busy intersection. A lot of people are coming back and going to the pier or coming back from the beach and going down to the beach, and a lot of cars get backed up waiting. Well, we were finally the first car in line waiting to go and a bunch of people were crossing and one family had a lot of beach stuff and the mom was the last one in line and she was holding the hand of her little girl, maybe four or five years old, who was also carrying some beach stuff too. I couldn't see exactly what happened, but the little girl, as they were almost all the way across the street, she might have dropped something or she just noticed something on the ground and went down to pick it up tugged on the mom's hand and the mom just yanked that little girl and then yanked her again got her across the street and then once they're over on the sidewalk she yanked on that arm a few more times and started chewing her out don't you stop in the street now i know at that moment the mom felt justified because once she's protecting her daughter and she's training her for the future but the truth is she was just cranky at that moment and what was coming out of her wasn't really training it was frustration and anger and potentially sin and all of us as parents do that at times we feel justified in what we're doing but what's coming out of us isn't necessarily what's best for the kid or pointing them to god and his truth or how about the happy churchgoer who is pleasant to talk with and nice to be around, but still has the pornography that he was viewing on the computer last night swirling around his mind during worship. At that moment, the night before, as he was logging onto the computer and getting ready to look up those things, he felt like this is just what he wanted. Even though he may have told himself time and time again, that's not what I wanted. That's not what God has for me. But then we get deceived when we fall into sin. Or the gossip who just loves to spread stories and seek after being able to tell the latest scoop. Regularly, I tell our students that all of God's rules either provide for us or they protect us. They provide for us for our futures or they protect us. This is a perspective of freedom. When you see it the right way, the sin is always stupid. But at the moment, we feel like that's just what we want. This is why confession is an important principle. When we tell each other the truth and share honestly with each other what we're dealing with and what we've done, we hear it come out of our mouths and recognize, oh yeah, that's dumb. I need to stop being like that. But in those moments, we feel we can justify it and deserve it in our minds. What ends up happening is good church people, people who should know better, They deceive themselves or get tricked by the devil into believing lies. And those lies wreck relationships and they wreck confidence and they wreck our futures. When that happens to you, forgive them. 
The Jewish leaders in this story had convinced themselves that what they were doing was good. In fact, they thought they were doing God a favor. They had orchestrated and then pressured the Romans to crucify Jesus. And then as he hung on the cross, pierced to it, they mocked him and they insulted him from their little groups at a safe distance. In the book of John chapter 19, it says this, describing those actions. It says, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself, come down from there if you really are God's son. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and then we'll believe in him. If God trusts in him, let God rescue him if he wants him. For he said, I'm the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. And Jesus' response, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The word translated forgive is also translated let be, or allow, or permit it, or suffer it. In other words, Jesus is asking God to be merciful to his murderers. And they're deceived and they just can't see it. So Jesus sets our example here. Forgive others the way that I forgive them and the way that I forgive you. In his book, The Cross of Jesus, Warren Worsby asked the following questions. He said, how do you view a lost world? What do you see in your heart when you see unsaved people acting like unsaved people? Do they irritate you, repel you, make you angry? He writes, if your faith in Jesus Christ isolates us from those who need him, there's something wrong with our faith and our love. I believe that forgiveness and love go hand in hand. They're like two sides of the same coin. I have a coin here and you can look at the coin differently. There's one thing on this side and another thing on the other side, but it's really one thing. And I think that forgiveness and love are similar to that. And this is also currency. It's worth value. And so I think this is a really good depiction of forgiveness and love because Honestly, I think that this is the heavenly currency that God gives us to use towards others. Forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. The next statement we're gonna look at while Jesus was on the cross, is found in John chapter 19, verses 25 to 27. It says, Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother he and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Now, I've read that the saying woman here, when Jesus refers to his mother, was not in any way disrespectful in that language or in that culture. My son has called his mom mom, woman on a couple of occasions, and he's trying to be funny or intentionally being a little bit rude for effect, but that isn't how we should read those words coming out of Jesus' lips. This is a personal note that's recorded in John's gospel because of the connection that Jesus and John had. 
And throughout this book, whenever John refers to himself, he uses language like this. He refers to himself in the third person. And he often writes as that person being special to Jesus. This time he said, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. Now, I encourage you to pause for a moment and picture in your mind that same kind of feeling of love from Jesus to you. Picture that you are loved by Jesus. Is it easy for you to imagine our Creator smiling at you and His face fondly considering you? I hope it is easy. And, and in addition to being easy, I hope that it will be a regular practice, that you will often picture Jesus actually considering you and smiling down on you. John sets a really good example for us here as he's referring to himself as someone that Jesus loves, Jesus Beloved. Now, the pain that Jesus was experiencing on the cross was excruciating. And yet, he takes a moment to care for others, to care for the people who are around him. The word excruciate, we actually get from the Latin meaning out of or from the cross. The crucifixion was so brutal that Herod the Great, the man in the Christmas story that wanted to kill all the babies because the wise men said a new king had been born, that Herod, he thought crucifixion was so brutal that he wouldn't use it as a form of execution. Have you ever had a toothache? Maybe you've ever been to the dentist and had an experience where the dentist gave you some shots and then started to do some work, was drilling in there, and you're like, ah, I feel that, ah, I feel that. That's the pain that Jesus was experiencing as the nails were pierced through his arms, his feet, his hands. It was excruciating where that feeling of the nerves being rubbed against the metal. Oh, it was just a brutal experience from him. It's so brutal that Jesus actually finds himself crying out. And this is a prophecy. He's directly quoting a scripture from Psalm 22, verse 1. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, the whole verse in Psalm 22, verse 1 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? He only, he only cried out the first part of that, and it's recorded in Matthew and Mark's gospel. Now, I picture someone in the crowd, crowd hearing those words and instantly knowing, oh, he's saying that scripture. And it's interesting that that scripture, the psalm, was actually a song. I wonder if someone was like, hey, I know that song. And I just started thinking recently, is there any possibility, is there any way that Jesus actually sang that line from that song? Did he sing out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't know the tune. It's told before Psalm 22 that it was written by King David and he gave it to the director of music to the tune of a doe in the morning. The doe of the morning. Psalm 22 describes more of the detail of Jesus' agony. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs and villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Jesus' bones were out of joint. They were weakened by the torture he had prior to the crucifixion. And then by the demands of gravity, they would just have been pulled apart as he hung on the cross and hung on those spikes. 
that says his bones were on display. This could have been from the loss of fluids. He would have sweated and lost so much blood from the torture, the beatings, the cat of nine tails that he'd suffered, and then from his hands and feet being pierced on the cross. Or it could have been that the whipping by the cat of nine tails actually tore flesh and his bones were on display. There were records of that from other prisoners when they could see that happening in other historical documents. Or it could just be an acknowledgement that he was unclothed, not even covered by a loincloth as we normally see in art that's done to, to show Jesus on the cross for propriety's sake, the usual way of showing Jesus. He could have just been there naked for everyone to see. And then in the midst of that pain, Jesus says to the people he loves, hey, take care of each other. And that's the job of the church too. It can be hard to stand out in the crowd. It's recorded that John was here and this Jesus' mother and some other family members and people that were known. But all of other Jesus' followers, all of the guys that were in his group, they were nowhere to be found. The scriptures tell us that they had fled out of fear. And these people who are mocking Jesus and taunting Jesus, it's quite likely that they were hurling those insults onto Jesus' mother and onto John and the other women that were there too. Please remember this, church, that in this world there's often a price to pay for aligning yourself with Jesus, but don't be afraid. Uh, the next scripture that we'll look at is when Jesus said to one of the thieves on the cross that he was going to be with him that day in paradise. It's found in Luke chapter 23, and we'll look at verses 38 to 43. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is one of the simplest conversion stories we know. In one of the other gospels, it said that both criminals were hurling insults at Jesus. And this one says that one of them must have had a change of heart. Now, we know that at about noon, the Lord caused the sky to go dark. And perhaps it's that that caused this criminal to be fearful. Or maybe it's what he saw Jesus doing, forgiving the people who were murdering him, caring about his family and loved ones. Maybe he saw the heart of Jesus, but something changed in his heart so that he converted. And I want to go over really quickly the specifics about what he did because it's simple and it's important. If you haven't trusted Jesus, you can do the same thing too. First of all, the man acknowledged his sin. He said to the other thief, look, we're being punished for what we deserve. And that's the case. That's what we all need to do. The second thing is that he believed that Jesus had done nothing wrong. This man has done nothing wrong. He acknowledged. And that's why when Jesus died for our sins, he can pay the penalty for it. He can cover up for what we've done because he lived a perfect life. And the third thing that the thief did is he asked Jesus to remember him when he came into his kingdom, which means he believed that Jesus was a king. And this simple thing is what any of us can do. They acknowledge our sin, confess that Jesus didn't have any, and that he has a kingdom, that he is the king. The sign above Jesus' head was not sarcasm. It was meant to be, but it was truth. He is the king.
Now, some would say, well, the thief was about to die. What would it hurt him at all? The thing is for the thief and for each of us, it's not a question about, well, I don't have anything to lose, but rather we have everything to gain. I try to tell students that God has a plan for us and his plans, which is really to love God and to love people, that those always provide for us and they protect us. God is trustable. If the thief had seen that earlier in his life, it would have saved him from a lot of heartache, a lot of hurt in his relationships. God's rules always provide for us and they always protect us. We can trust him. Jesus, remember us when you come into your kingdom and help us remember you and live for you each day. We're going to look at two more sayings of Jesus while he's on the cross. And they're both from John chapter 19, starting with verses 28 and 29. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked the sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of a hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Now, the John Riley way of reading this situation, using my imagination, is that Jesus had turned down the drink at the beginning because he didn't want any extra fluids, especially if it might help him live longer on the cross, to suffer longer. And now that he was at the end, now that he was about to die, in order to fulfill the scripture, he said, he said that he was thirsty. Earlier, we read from Psalm 22 that explained his mouth was so dry that his tongue was sticking to the roof of his mouth. And it said it was like a pot shirt. That's an interesting word. And it describes a piece of pottery, especially a broken piece of pottery. Imagine something that's so brittle that if you just touch it, it will crumble. That's how his mouth felt to him right at this time. When he cries out, my God, my God, some of the people around him couldn't understand him, probably because he was so parched or maybe they were a further distance away. But the words, Eli, Eli, well, some people thought, oh, he's calling for Elijah. Maybe Elijah will save him. And Jesus is making sure that the scriptures get fulfilled, including this one from Psalm 69, verse 21, where it says, they put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Knowing that everything had been finished, Jesus was at the end and he had fulfilled all the prophecies leading up to his time on the cross and just had this one more to take care of. And he made sure that it happened. And then the last verse, John 19, verse 30. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Okay, so I called the message all done, but Jesus didn't actually say all done. He said, it is finished. Now, the grammar check on my computer kept underlining the phrase, it is finished, and it wanted me to change it to say, it was finished. But what the computer doesn't understand is that the Greek word that's used here is special. The Greek word is listed in the present and the perfect tense. In English, we're familiar with the present tense. We have three tenses. We have the past, the present, and the future. But in the Greek, they also have a perfect tense. And this word is listed in both present and perfect tense. We know what the present means, but the perfect represents not just now, but always for now. Or not just the future, but always into the future. 
It's an ongoing tense. It's an always tense. It means it, all, it is always finished or it is always all done. Have you ever paid a bill and then went back into the store where you bought something and paid for it again? Or imagine you have a car payment and you get to the final payment. No more monthly expense, no more, the car's paid off. And then what if you kept allowing the bank to withdraw funds month after month and have it go to the dealer, even after the car was paid off? This is what some believers do, or maybe what all believers do some of the time when we struggle to accept God's love. And when you and I, when we let our inadequacies when we let our mistakes try and cover up what Jesus did for us on the cross. Imagine we're trying to cover up his sacrifice in any way. When we do that, we're denying the power and the completion of what Jesus accomplished. It is finished. One of the best pictures of what Jesus accomplished on the cross was written by the prophet Isaiah and recorded in chapter 53. We've looked at three chapters today from the Old Testament that are actually wonderful studies to examine. We've only looked at a few verses from each of those, but those are Psalm 22, Psalm 69, and now Isaiah 53. I invite you to take some more time and study these to really get an amazing picture of all that Jesus accomplished for us and all that he went through on our behalf. Here's how the prophet Isaiah put it in verses 4 and 6 of 53. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, and yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like street sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus suffered intentionally. As I mentioned at the beginning, he was born to die. He volunteered for the job. When you and I suffer, oftentimes we wish to know the point. We question, why is this happening? What is the benefit that's meant to come from it? And we don't always get to see what the point is. But Jesus had the point in mind for his whole life and throughout his whole death. His perfect life, his sacrificial death, these paid the price for our sins, our transgressions, and by his wounds we are healed. And then Jesus cried out, it is finished. That phrase in English comes from the single Greek word, tetelestio. Let me say it the right way. Tetelestai, tetelestai. A longtime youth worker and trainer of youth workers and a radio host and author, Dawson McAllister, he wrote about this word. And he said, the cry, it is finished, is a Greek word, tetelestai. And it was a very common word and would have been very familiar to those who were standing around the cross. Servants used it whenever they had finished an assignment and reported back to their masters. When Jesus said it, he was telling his father, I have finished what you sent me here to do. And priests used it as well. They used it whenever a sacrifice that was brought to the temple was found to be acceptable. The priest would say, Tetelestai, or it's perfect. And Jesus was the only acceptable sacrifice for our sins. He was the perfect sacrifice. Artists would use it when they finished a painting or a sculpture, when their work was complete. And Jesus made sure that the work was complete when he was there on the cross. 
He did everything that needed to be done to bring us to God. And finally, merchants used it when a bill would have been paid in full. The bill would have been stamped, Tetelestai, paid in full. Our sins have been paid for in full by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Tetelestai. One of the things I like to ask students who are new believers is, what happened to your sins? And so often, without having an in-depth Bible study or having any training, they actually know the answer. And usually they look at me and they say, it's gone. They're gone. And recently I was at camp and one of my counselors said that one of the girls in her cabin became a Christian the night before. This was at summer camp. It wasn't that recent because it was a year and a half ago the last time we had our camp. Anyway, the next morning we were walking from our part of Forest Home over to the main camp where the pool was. And I made sure to catch up to that girl and talk to her. I understand you became a believer, a follower of Jesus last night. She said, yes, I did. And I asked her, so what happened to your sins? And interestingly, she surprised me. She said, they're washed away. I didn't expect her to say that. And so I thought, hmm. And I asked her, well, what is it that washed them away? It stumped her for just a little while. She thought about it. And she was like, hmm. And then she said, kind of in a a little bit of a hesitant voice, she said, well, uh, Jesus' blood, I guess. And she's absolutely right. It's Jesus' blood that washed her sins and my sins and all of our sins away. Jesus paid the price. Our sins are gone in the present and perfect and always sense. And so we say, thank you, Jesus. Uh, Sometimes we make things more complicated than it needs to be. I... um, didn't realize that this was going to happen, but my, both of my boys, when they were really little, they learned to use sign language to communicate before they were able to speak. Now, I didn't even know that this was a thing, that this was possible, but their mom read about it and so she taught them. And here's how the signing is supposed to go. This is more and please, more please. So when we were feeding them, we would ask them if they wanted something and if they wanted it, they would make the sign more please. In our house, it turned a little bit different, and it ended up just being a slap in the stomach or something, more, more, more. But we knew what they were saying. We understood. We got the point. And then the other one was all done. And this is the sign for, sometimes I see people do this multiple times, but all done. And in our house, it became like a field goal. All done. And it was really fun. This is a picture of my oldest, and he was done with something. All done. We have very fond memories of that. I bring this to your attention because sometimes uh, trusting the Lord is in a similar vein. We make it more complicated than we really need to. And it can be simpler for us and for other people to be able to communicate with the Lord and be able to trust in Him. You may find yourself in a similar way skeptical that what Jesus did was really sufficient and if that's the case, I encourage you to talk to, about it, talk to God about it. Pray to Him. Ask some other people at the church. Study the scriptures because the Lord promises that those who seek will find Him. And it really isn't that complicated. In fact, Jesus summed up our problem very simply in the book of John, chapter 16, verse 9, where He said, The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in Me. The main problem, because He paid for all of our sins, is that we need to have faith place our trust in him. Or perhaps you've been engaged in the process. Perhaps you've been thinking about this for some time. And maybe like the thief on the cross, today is the day that something stirred in you, a fire kindled in your heart to trust in Jesus. If it seems to you like it should be more difficult, remember 
that the burden and pain of salvation was done by Jesus on the cross. He's the one who did the hard work for us to connect with God. He's the one that did the work to save us. Hebrews 10, 14 says, For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Will you do as he did, Emmanuel Faith, and forgive the people who have wronged you? Will you follow him by loving the people around you, even if at that moment you're going through a really particularly tough time? Will you see his smiling face looking at you, even when life's hard, and know that he loves you, that you are God's beloved? And will you trust him with your life since he gave his life for yours? If you're interested in doing that right now, you simply just need to do what the thief did. Acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge that Jesus didn't have any sin. And ask him to remember you when he comes into his kingdom. He is the king. Place your trust and faith in him. Jesus, thank you for paying the price for our sin. We believe you took care of it. And it's all done. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.